0: Do you know how tricky it is to f- find a title for this that someone else hasn't used? It's... Oh, God. Are the good ones all used up? Well, I tried The Golden Age of Black and White TV, but mm-hmm. others have got there first. And "I'm there, are you? And I thought, how about rose-tinted television? And okay. apparently some up-and-coming filmmaker has bagged that one. Ah. So even Room 405... It's the title of a 90s horror movie. So, 405 lines. For anyone who doesn't know, in the days that we're talking about, television's had lines. Oh, right, yeah. And all you could get before the days of BBC Two was 405 lines. In the United States, was probably 505 lines, and that is why it's so difficult to sell stuff to the United States in on video so that's why they had to film it and transfer it to 16 mil film and p- pretend but even room 405 is the title of a 90s
1: horror movie
0: apparently i'm sure you've seen uh,
1: it um i that's all right i wonder what it's about um i, I tell you what if it's not got a room in it and it's not room 405 i'd be really disappointed yeah you'd want your money back wouldn't you yes i would
0: <laughs> anyway hello and welcome To the rose-tinted black and white TV podcast because what the world hasn't got enough of is two middle-aged white men talking about things on the screen. I've no idea how many of these we're going to make but uh, The Saint starring Roger Moore uh, which has recently started showing on Talking Pictures TV, um, the go-to channel of choice, has 71 black and white episodes, so you've been warned. Talking Pictures are also showing May Gray, saw one last night But I've seen them all because we've got the DVD box set. That's how sad we are. And with the George Simonon-approved Rupert Davis as the inspector. With proper location shots and not stock footage. So what we're going to talk about is television shows from the 1960s. Some of which are still available. uh, A lot of which have been lost. And a few of which may never even have existed at all. But perhaps still could. Which is our speciality. This is a job that calls for an international man of mystery someone who's at home sipping a macchiato outside a roman cafe prowling the mean streets of leeds or out on safari hunting goats in landed no. it has to be david newell writer actor and scholar of vintage adventure fiction both on the
1: page and on screen hello dave all right hello what an introduction one i maybe think maybe that's that's We've topped out there. I think we just leave it there. Um, Just do a short podcast. Just leave it with that introduction. I'm happy with that. I'm good to go now. Okay. well, before we say that's a wrap, let's just see
0: how much of a scholar of adventure television uh, you are. (laughs) Oh, oh, it's going to be like a really difficult pub quiz. (laughs) Yeah, if if, if we treat it like that, then that's probably the best uh, way to think about it. But we're kicking off with Roger Moore in The Saint, made by Lou Grade's ITC. And Dave, this isn't the first time audiences have seen Leslie Chartres' character on screen. Uh, no, uh,
1: he's, Leslie Charter is quite an interesting uh, individual um, of, of Chinese heritage, surname actually being Yin, um, born and raised in Singapore, which at the time would have been um, an English colony, I think. Um, changed his name to the more anglicised Leslie Charteris, uh, and uh, in the 1930s started started writing uh, um, about a character called Simon Templer, the Saint, um, as is described um, as the modern day is the uh, modern day Robin Hood of of crime. So he's been knocking around for ages. You know, loads of people have had a crack. Uh, at, at, at playing the Saint, obviously Roger Moore um, in the team, you know TV Ian Ogilvy had a go. George Sanders had a go. Val Kilmer in a big bucks um, version. Even Vincent Price had uh, had a go it. Presumably the Saint in a haunted house or something like that would 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 be that episode. I, I don't know. And and very strangely, and I think this is this is an area where modern crime writers really need to to kind of like get their chisel together. Um, as well as writing the books and, and quite often, you know, asking for approval on some of the scripts on the on the films or the TV series. Um, he also wrote the theme tune. Didn't he also create the Stickman logo? He did, yeah, he did the lot. Now, at the time, this was quite groundbreaking. Uh, in the 1930s, I know Dame Agatha Christie did have a go at coming up with the theme tune for *Hook Your Perot*. Um, came up with uh, Monsieur La Mystery*, and um, she learned to play the accordion for it and everything. But it just didn't catch on. Didn't catch on. And maybe she just needed just those one or two extra accordion lessons um, uh, to have it. But I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's, there's room. Uh, for fiction crime writers to to come up with theme tunes. I think uh, um, Ian Rankin is is just begging to do some like some prog rock piece of music for Rebus. So it's, yeah, it's quite, quite unique coming up with a logo and coming up with a theme to you and writing the books as well. Kind of like a one-man threat. To um, like a PR department, it really is Leslie Charteris. He's incredibly prolific, and he's he's only known for
0: the Saint. And you mentioned Agatha Christie. I mean, he's in that sort of league in terms of creating a signature character. Yeah,
1: you know the idea of right. Okay, I'm going to write. Uh, I think his first one was was it The Saint Meets the Tiger. Um, and thankfully, it wasn't like a wildlife story or anything like that. Tiger is actually like some nasty gang leader or, or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, the idea of creating this Robin Hood of crime, and in the books, uh, is a lot edgier. Simon Templar is, is is a little bit harder, a little bit tougher, and doesn't kind of like shy away from killing people. Obviously, for for good reasons, you know. Just you know, he's not arbitrary. But the the notion is of when the TV series came along that maybe we needed to to soften those edges uh, a little bit so that Simon Templar isn't uh, you know just running around uh, doing things so the idea is he's, he's he's much more a heroic figure
0: yeah I mean who does that
1: watching it when I was very
0: young um, I must point out I was going to wonder well how does he earn his living basically he's no because he, i don't recall you ever actually seeing him steal anything much in the same way as michael rennie's harry lime mm. who's kind of converted from being this fairly despicable character that graham green created and then harry lime appears and you know once again great theme tune very urbane and you kind of think well what exactly does he do? Because I mean, you've been an international man of mystery. It's a, just how do you go about your day?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the international man of mystery thing, I mean, sometimes the hours aren't good. Pay isn't particularly, you know, you're not, I mean, not going to make a lot of money from it. Not really. But apparently for, for the TV series, uh, uh, Leslie Charter said, all right, we're going to reveal just how Simon Templer makes his money. You think, oh, wow, great. We're going to find out. And then they never did. <laughs> so he's uh, you know Roger Moore was still able to 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 swan around in his great suits and also it's that very odd thing of um some people seem to instantly recognize him uh, usually at the beginning oh well it's not every day you bump into um, the renowned simon templar and then he gets like his little halo appear above his head uh, whereas other people are absolutely clueless and therefore simon templar can kind of like go undercover he may be an international uh, man of mystery, but when it comes to disguises in the TV series, he's no Mike Yarwood. You know, he's he's not necessarily. Although that was one of the things that 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 people said um, about the big bucks Val Kilmer um, film in the 1990s, uh, where at, at times he just came across like Dick Emery uh, because of the way he was he was using his disguises and accents. Whereas, you know, a lot of the times it would just be, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Simon Templar.
0: Yes. And inevitably we are going to talk about the Avengers at some point because uh, it is the behemoth around which the whole adventure mystery universe revolves. But in the same way that uh, Steed very seldom uses a pseudonym uh, Mm. to... um, go undercover once once or twice but it's always mr steve or mrs peel or kathy gale or Tara king scarcely bother to cover their tracks because uh, in the old days no one had face recognition on their phones
1: yes sadly lacking um and a lot of crime fighting series really just does does left a lot of gaps sometimes in plotting We've come
0: to Leslie Charteris. he's had films made out of The Saint.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, go all the way back to the 30s, yeah. And that was the thing that I was quite surprised about when uh, in the 60s I was watching, that not only was Leslie Charteris still alive, but he was still writing these things. And, mm. and I was making that comparison with Georges Simenon. I mean, they're roughly the same age. There's about four years difference bet- between them. They both die about the age of 85, 86. And they're both still writing stuff as their shows hit the TV screen. Yeah, I mean, they're quite similar characters. And the, 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 there you go. You've got someone who is incredibly prolific, who invents a signature character. And so was obviously better known than Charteris. So you've got Agatha mm. Christie, George Simonon, and Leslie Charteris. I mean, I think it's strange that Leslie Charteris hasn't actually had his reputation as um, polished as um, people like Agatha Christie. I mean, her family are looking after it. George Simenon's family are looking yeah. after it.
1: Although we, we still have Leslie Charteris's good works. Good oh, works yeah. now. Uh, yeah, he, he set up something um, originally called The Saint Club um which was um formed i think in the 19 might have been 1940s um and uh, originally um you know he, he maintained um an eight uh, bed ward at a london children's hospital um for um the benefit of uh, of individuals um and then he also started looking at youth clubs and it was originally it was kind of like youth clubs in in london um involving children who may be kind of like you know have survived the blitz um but uh you know looking at rebuilding london now that seems kind of like very very much uh of its of its time but the the, the charity itself is still running there is still like a foundation so there must still be that sort of like protective aspects like you said about about dame Agatha christie uh you know that that protective aspect of wait a minute we're still doing you Know kind of like good works. So, if anyone wants to donate to, have
0: you got a web address there?
1: Uh, I've um, actually, I'm sorry, I'm reading one hour of um, a book I've got here called The Saint in Miami. Um, and it says the minimum annual subscription is just two and six. That sounds cheap.
0: I think there may be more updated information available on the web, but um, type oh,
1: in, oh, right, okay, yes. Uh, um, Yes, we can mention it towards the end, after I've looked it up (laughs) on that there internet. Right, so
0: the emergence of The Saint on television, created by Lou Grade's ITC Entertainment, who have been behind a lot of stuff. Initially, it was Robin Hood, and of course The Saint being um, a modern-day Robin Hood, Hey. and also, Roger Moore had played a real knight in armour, hadn't he?
1: Yeah, Roger Moore had a good track record of of solid TV. He'd done Ivanhoe, he'd done The Alaskans, he'd done Maverick. So so he had a good track record in, um, I suppose, what might be called standard thick ear um, type TV shows. So, he, yeah, he, you know, and he'd done feature films as well uh, and maybe his his feature film career uh, um, perhaps hadn't gone as, as successfully as, you know, he thought it should have done. Um, but, yeah, TV just gobbled him up. Were there any other candidates, do you know, that could have been The Saint? Uh, obviously, the the go-to person is is usually either, if you know, if you're looking at either James Bond, if you're looking at The Saint or anything like that, apparently the default position, and, and maybe this is, is, is just an idea of how writers' minds work, um, would be Get Me David Niven. You know, it would always be that that I'd just get David Nevin to do it. He, he's debonair; he'll do it. He can carry a suit, uh, and so there all there always seemed to be that 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 default position. But at the time, you know, they were looking at at perhaps bringing in someone someone newer and someone fresher. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was um, good old Roger. I mean, there's very
0: few people who would look that good in a suit has to be
1: said particularly like an early 60s suit as as yeah. well because it's that idea of you know do you want the the robin hood of modern crime to look like a mod it's that idea of uh, of very thin lapels and thin black ties but um no he's he's just able to to do it with a certain amount of panache and as we know from roger moore he later in life he did have a proven track record in clothing design he used to design all his outfits for the Persuaders.
0: Oh, right. Wasn't he also responsible for
1: some of those safari suits in Bond? I'd like to think so. It's kind of like always having something to fall back on uh, in terms of, like, costume design. And perhaps, you know, stitching those double vents and those pockets, not easy. And trying to source that kind of... That amount of beige (laughs) during the 70s beige shortage, you know, wasn't easy. And there were rumours at the time that some of it may have been kind of like a little bit under the counter, but that's legend. You know, that's, that's, shh, we don't talk about it. No, Black Market Beige It's still mm, one of those no. very
0: sore points, isn't it? Oh. So let's look at that first episode, The Talented Husband, because strangely, this is how much time I've had on my hands recently. I've watched it. I timed the amount of screen time that Roger Moore had, and it's less than half the entire show, because most of it is the the main protagonist is Derek Farr playing the unscrupulous
1: murderous husband. Boo hiss, boo hiss. Uh, and now you've also got this nice uh, again one of those little nice little connections is Shirley Eaton, who would later on obviously go on to be painted gold. Um, spoiler alert in Goldfinger, you you kind of got that the idea of it's it's like an embryonic sort of beginning to to try and get the balance right of of what the show was going to be like um because the talented husband is is kind of it's a little bit home counties and then all of a sudden it's it's you know as the, as, the, as the series progressed and as you know as the series moved into color episodes it was this idea of yeah he, he was kind of like a, a jet set justice person going around and you know dispensing um, his, his his version of justice um, like that thing it's like the old thing about um, episodes of the bill there should be a police officer in every shot um, so ideally with an episode of the Saint Roger Moore should be in every shot. That's what people are tuning in for, isn't it?
0: I mean, mm. the, the thing about the talented husband, makes a big point of Cookham and that there is actual location footage of Cookham. <sighs> I'm a bit puzzled as to how Mario is running a pub and a hotel in Cookham. And particularly when he's obviously an old friend of Simon Templar. Now, when you're watching these sort of things, And you see a rather elaborate set. You sort of think, we're going to come back to this because they've spent a lot of money and time having built this set. We've got all those camera setups in that hotel bar reception area. So we do go back there a couple of times. And then there's that thing where you're leading up to that first commercial break and you meet Shirley Eaton. And you just think, oh, this looks good. And there's a lot of kind of Raymond Chandler-esque mm. fencing, isn't there? Before they cut to the chase.
1: Bring us two Manhattans
0: on me. The lady's spoken, Mario. You wish you ward like a general.
1: You want to argue?
0: Not with the general as pretty as you. However, sometimes I ask questions.
1: Sometimes I answer.
0: What's your name?
1: Adrian Halberg. We've met before? You don't remember?
0: Oh, yes, of course, it was Paris in the spring. The Central Park in the right. Calgary in the Chinook. Now you're guessing. Well, how about you're a special investigator for the Majestic Insurance Company, and you're in Cookham for exactly the same reasons I am. To prevent John Claren from murdering his third wife. <laughs> No messing about, and you know, show don't
1: tell. And it, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting, you know, because a lot of those initial stories may not necessarily have, you know, entirely, you know, an origin within within Leslie Charteris's stories. Uh, you know, it would be quite yet. Yeah, we've got the we've got the character now. How do we kind of have it in this episodic? um you know tv and this is back in those those glory days of tv when you know you didn't have like huge expansive character arcs uh to 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 have to go we're oh, gonna have to tune in next week oh i'm gonna have to tune in next week oh god this is no you know it's like a, a cliffhanger um no it would just be right okay we've had this episode i've been running around the home counties and next week oh we're gonna run around a different area of the home counties uh and it's it's always interesting to to remember that idea you, what the difference is between a drama series and a drama serial you know that idea of um is it episodes of tv or is it episodic um tv so it's uh, uh, you know because you didn't have you know recurring huge you know huge numbers of recurring characters except think- for inspector teal yeah, I think he was—he was about the only one who would—who would—who would turn up. You know, because the idea of to to have a little bit of legitimacy with um, crime fighters who maybe kind of like the uh, um, the iffy side of the law is that they would have um, a cop friend who would would lend them a certain amount of legitimacy every once in a while and and just turn up in a raincoat and a hat and arrest someone right at the very end. Yes, well, in terms of.
0: I mean, it's about three different actors played Teal before Iver Dean finally settled in and sort of became the regular one. I think there was somebody who played the equivalent role on the, in France, wherever it was, whether it was on the Riviera or whether it was in... But I also noticed that in the second episode, which is the Latin touch, which is obviously Rome, which looks like they actually took a Super 8 camera to Rome and filmed... <laughs> Roger Moore at a distance before cutting back to the studio. It's the first appearance of Warren Mitchell, but I think he played the same taxi driver three times. So I think that was possibly something to do with the casting director. I mean, if as we carry on with this, we'll probably be able to map out who was where on a particular date, who was actually using the same canteen and maybe had their own parking
1: spot at um, Elstreet. Street. Um and also I suppose you could almost do like um a bingo, bingo game of accents of um again, you know, people like Warren Mitchell uh would be one of those those go-to people uh and just go, Oh, can you do this? Can you do this kind of accent? Can you do that? Um and just go, yeah, I'll give it a go. Uh, and quite often you know with his his international man of mystery um, turning up at various locations uh, you would require someone all right can you do this accent can you do to do that accent I guess you know at the time you know early 60s we perhaps may not uh, the domestic audience may not have, have just thought oh well actually that sounds doesn't sounds so much like um, a catalonian accent it, it sounds more like an Andalusian spanish accent so i'm i'm feeling a bit disappointed in watching this episode uh, but yeah you would have those those people who would just turn up and um for want of a better phrase act warren mitchell didn't always
0: play foreigners um there is uh, an episode of the studio-based avengers including cathy gale where he plays uh, an army officer on the whole he tended to be He was the KGB's representative in in Britain, as far as I can tell, or the Russian ambassador, I'm not entirely sure, which then graduates into the Mrs. Peel filmed versions. Uh, Mm. And then, being incredibly efficient, they recycled one of the Warren Mitchell episodes with Michael Goff doing the same. (laughs) Um, And there's an awful lot of that. uh, And um, Brian Clemens was very good at... um, never letting an idea go to waste
1: one of the things you know you you kind of have to remember it it was almost like i suppose it's like soaps uh it's, it was like factory television uh you know right okay we're going to write an episode we're going to to plan it out we're going to produce it we're going to cast it we're going to direct it we're going to score it we're going to shoot it uh and it's it's doing that on a on a you know on a regular basis sometimes a very short basis uh it's you're reminded of, um, I suppose, the, the the economy and the urgency, I suppose, of the of the production process. You know that idea because don't forget that the saint was was ITC's um, biggest biggest tv series biggest you know it was the tv series that itc made that had the most episodes others you know such as like um randall and Hopkirk, deceased or the baron or or you know things like that kind of didn't run uh, um as smooth but with the with the saint you know they clocked up 118 episodes um you know that's a that's a big box set if you'd bought that yes which i um have it
0: done so i'm very glad that talking pictures is showing the black and white episodes thank um, you
1: talking pictures yes sundays at 6 p.m by the way there we go there's a that's a little bit of product placement thank you on freeview channel 82 um freestat 306 um virgin 445 or for those of you who could still afford sky sky digital 328 now i'm going to ask now about about some urban myths Right. About um, I don't know whether they're urban myths or, or cinematic myths. Maybe they might have their own, their own separate aspect. And and quite often uh, when one is kind of like researching TV series, you know, you might go to Wikipedia, you might go, IMDB usually seems to be kind of like the default um, aspect. And it's quite nice, you know, when you read about like the little trivia aspects and you read about it and you go, ha, 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 oh, I never knew that. Um, now allegedly uh, to to make the saint more appealing and you mentioned earlier about uh, about tv series being filmed so it was easier to to be shown in the states um, apparently to make the saint more appealing in the first series roger moore adopted an american accent i've not heard it or it's very subtle I know Roger Moore can do an American accent because some years ago, I went to see him live um, uh, uh, an afternoon with Sir Roger Moore. This is back when he was a bit old, so we couldn't have an evening with Sir Roger Moore. It was just like an afternoon. Uh, And he was talking about working on The Persuaders and he did an absolute spot-on impression of of Tony Curtis. But apparently to make it more appealing... He did um, an American accent, although it makes you wonder how they would have made Cookham appealing to an American audience. I don't know that that would be harder. One of the other myths as well is that for a lot of, of 60s detectives um, and agents uh, and international men of mystery, uh, they would they would normally have like a signature vehicle. Uh, obviously the Avengers had their their signature vehicles man from uncle, their sing, uh, uh, signature vehicle. and apparently what they wanted for the saint they wanted an e-type jag because mm. that was that was on trend, that was on message um at the moment. but um they were uh, apparently a little bit slow in, in in coming forward. apparently spare parts weren't particularly good. um so again, whether this is an urban myth, do not know. But it's a great one. Uh, Roger Moore said, well, I drive a Volvo P1800. Maybe we could use that. Um, it became the the Saints' go-to car.
0: Yes. I love the E-Type Jag, but mm-hmm. it's got an absolutely huge bonnet. And I suspect that um, when he's cornering around those twisty hairpin bends in various foreign parts, it might be
1: absolutely terrible to steer. <laughs> Um, Yeah, just look at the beginning of um, uh, 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 just look what happens to that E type jag in the Italian job. That doesn't last the course, does it?
0: No. And and white jags, particularly in ITC programs, tend to fare Mm. very badly.
1: Very poor, very poor performances. Uh, so, yeah, the Volvo, there you go, became a uh, signature vehicle. Obviously, it was a little different to, to, I think I think it was Corgi or was it Dinky who did a version, and that had the Saint stick figure on the bonnet. Uh, so so that way, if you did see one of those parked up, you just go, look, Simon Templer must be in like McFisheries, or he's <laughs> gone into the post office, something like that, because um, you'd see his car with a, like, the big stick figure on the front. Bit of a
0: giveaway. So going back to the talented husband, I mean, the fact that you could just go and buy rat poison is quite interesting. That's all very Agatha Christie, isn't it? Mm, Yeah, I'm going to the rat poison (laughs) shop. But going and doing that and then casually leaving said tin of rat poison in a waste bin in the kitchen for anyone to
1: find. Once again, I I don't think he'd thought this through thoroughly enough. I know. Sounds like a bit of a rash plan, Rick. Really. It's um, like with, with most murder mysteries, you know, particularly Agatha Christie ones, uh, there's certain rules you to follow. Never, ever attempt to blackmail a murderer. Never. You're going to end up as 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 dead as a doornail. Just don't, you know, don't try it. And no one ever buys rat poison to poison rats. No wonder there's so many running around London. Uh, so, yeah, there's always those amateur mistakes people make. Now, going back to the writer, have you come across any more information
0: about... The credited screenwriter Jack Sanders.
1: Jack Sanders. Um, now, of the what of the first episode? Of, of the first
0: episode, because I looked him up on IMDb, and okay, yeah, his total credits is the first episode of The Saint.
1: Which and you would think, hey, you know, that's 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 going to be good. Look at me, I've done this. I've you know written the first episode. Uh, of a big new TV series it's got Roger Moore in it, it's going to be one of the biggest ITC um, successes do we think that maybe it could be a pseudonym I was kind of wondering it could be Leslie Chartres himself
0: (gasps) but um, I'm not entirely sure whether he was a man to hide his light under a bushel It's, it's an intriguing thing because I can't find any reference to a contemporary Jack Sanders who might have been responsible for anything else. I am slightly mystified about that. Whereas in the second episode, it's Gerald Kelsey and Dick Sharples, both of whom are eminently traceable and used to work together before they kind of went uh, off and did their own um, particular things. So that's quite interesting. And you know, the usual sort of people who were writing for the saint and nearly everything else, I think Brian Clemens is on record saying there's only about a dozen people who do th- stuff like we do. That-
1: yeah, because you would you would have you would have those the uh, you know those go to people who would be uh, you know recognised as a right. We you know they can they can work under this pressure. You know what we we're talking about before about, about that idea of factory television. Uh, you know, the idea of, right, okay, you need to come up with an episode and you need to come up with an episode in, you know, this length of time. Um, quick go away. Um, back in the glory days of, of when you just used to be typing things. Goodness sake, typing things. Um, you know, people used to be able to to do it, to have that turnaround time and that, that quickness, that ability um, and that skill to to be able to draft something and write something which would fit in with that niche element, uh, would be, uh, you know, hugely enviable quality, you know, cause I, you know, you wouldn't want uh, kind of like an introspective episode of the same where It's just him at home and he's just having a little bit of think about things. Um, and it's like a Sunday and it's a Sunday in, in, in Britain in the sixties. So it's relatively quiet. Um, there's not much on telly you know, he's had the paper uh, uh, delivered and he's kind of uncertain. Do I have a big breakfast? Do I have a big Sunday lunch instead? don't know. Could I have both? Cause it's my day off. So yeah, you've got that idea of, of wait a minute. We need to, to have that, that factory element of quick, you know, you need to, to write an episode or quick. You need to write a next one. I mean, they used to do it in about two to three weeks. And mm. you
0: know, you're talking about 10 pages a day or whatever it is. If you've, I suppose if you're working from one of the original novels, then you've got an idea of what the skeleton of the story is, and then you can break it down, and then it's dialogue. And because even though it's on film, you're based in studios, you're not going to do a lot of location filming. There's going to be a bit Mm. of fisticuffs or something. Maybe... Mm somebody might be dangling off a piece of scenery that looks, and then they cut away down to six floors below where there's the Elstree parking lot. Mm. Uh, And that would be uh, about it. Yeah, so I mean, it is one of those iconic series. And there were other iconic series. One of the other ones that uh, I discovered was Sergeant Cork. (laughs)
1: All right. Oh, okay, okay. um, I'm I'm unfamiliar with with Sergeant Court. Obviously, I wouldn't normally deal with someone that low in the ranks. Well, that, that
0: um, tends to crop up where people say only sergeant. Um, or they keep calling <laughs> him inspector. But he has a posh sidekick played by William Gaunt, who, as we're <gasps> recording, it's April the third.
1: Happy birthday, William Gaunt! It is William Gaunt from the um, from the champions hooray well
0: well done william so that brings us to the end of this first podcast of rose-tinted black and white tv if you've been listening all the way you're probably still hanging on for that reference to the saint club well all i can do is refer you to lesleycharteris.com, which is the official website of the author and hopefully you'll be able to find some indications there. Thanks of course to my co-host Dave Newell, I'm Guy Morgan, and we hope to be back with more Rose Tinted Black and White Nonsense very soon.